Welcome to Grow It Minnesota, the podcast about growing fruit, vegetables, flowers, and anything else in a cold, cold climate. I'm your host, Mary Shear, a home gardener and garden writer based in St. Paul, Minnesota. My book is The Northern Gardener from Apples to Zinnias, a basic guide for northern gardeners with a little history thrown in. The history is from the Minnesota State Horticultural Society. I also edit their magazine, Northern Gardener, and you can find more about that at northerngardener.org or check out my blog, mynortherngarden.com. Now let's get on to today's guest. So today I am joined by Alan Branhagen, who is the Director of Operations at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum and the author of a new book on gardening with native plants called The Midwest Native Plant Primer, which is a terrific book, and I really enjoyed reading it. But let's start, Alan. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you do at the uh, Landscape Arboretum where you're Director of Operations. That sounds like a big job. It is a big job. Well, I've uh, been here at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum for, well, this is my fourth summer now. So, you know, next next spring will be my fourth anniversary here. Um, I did grow up in the Midwest and actually not that far from here in Decorah, Iowa. So in the same zone four cold climate. And I will say that um, as that I was introduced to the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum when I was 17, no, 15, excuse me. And as soon as I got a driver's license, my parents let me drive from Decorah up to the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. Wow, that's a pretty long drive. <laughs> yeah, so then it was about three and a half hours. Now you can make it in three with all the highway improvements, even though the city, it's shocking how much the city has spread over to here. Um, so, and I, I remember, you know, those first visits here, I mean, just what a great organization and what a beautiful place. And I thought, you know, someday I want to work, want to work here. So little did I know it would be late in my career, but, um, yeah, here at, at, um, the Arboretum, yeah, I'm in charge of horticulture and, um, plant curation, uh, facilities, and shocking enough, um, information technology also supervise that crew. So, um, yeah, the general operations of the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. And, yeah, I uh, still love the site as much as I did the first time I visited. I think it really is a special place with its incredible collections woven through such a beautiful natural landscape of wetlands and forests. So. Yeah, it's a ter- it's just a wonderful place to visit, and, and so many great plants and gardens there. And how's the landscape been doing during the whole COVID shutdown? I know you are open by appointment, yeah. right? You have to purchase a ticket in advance, correct? But mm-hmm. I think you know the availability is really good right now, so almost everyone should be able to get in. But yeah, we need to. You need to have a ticket to come in. You can't. You can't just show up. So, but yeah, we, uh, you know, attendance is, uh, you know, again, we have, I forget what it is per, per hour, but, um, you know, attendance is doing, doing really well right now. And I think people are getting, you know, the chance to come visit us, but yeah, we were shut down for a while this spring. Um, and then at first you could just drive through the Arboretum. And um, of course now the entire grounds are open and you can walk on the grass wherever you want to go or any of the trails. So we're open. And actually, fall is a wonderful time to visit there because of the tree collection that you have. And you also have fantastic dahlias. 
that I saw <laughs> last year. Just I'm like, yeah. wow, amazing dahlias yeah. in some parts of the arboretum. So. Yes, we, we, we still have them in the core garden. Unfortunately, the, the beautiful trial planting that we normally showcase is not, was not installed because we couldn't, and we still don't have the uh, okay to have volunteers uh, here, which uh, the Dahlia Society, of course, was instrumental in that. So, But yeah, the tree collections here are absolutely amazing. I'm, every time I go out, I'm just shocked. Um, we don't even promote a lot of the unique things we have. And the, the forefathers of this place really left no stone unturned. It just amazes me what we have. And we probably should do a little better job of, of showcasing that. Um, plants from all over the world and some that are extremely rare and not talked about. So anyway. Well, let's talk about your book, The Midwest Native Plant Primer, which just came out in this year, I believe, 2020. And, yeah. and you have an earlier book about native plants as well which I think was bigger or, you know, had more plants in it. So what was the impetus to write this particular book about native plants? Well, that was it. It was to um, reach a wider audience and be less intimidating and really be um, kind of condensed into a format that more the lay person or a new homeowner would not be intimidated, pick it up and really get inspired uh, to use native plants. And so that was the whole reason behind it. And so far I'm getting lots of good feedback on that. So thank you for your comments. Um, we really want to be inclusive on this and, and reach as many people as we want or as we, you know, we can. Yeah. And why should people be using more native plants or, or even entirely native plants in their home gardens? What's the, what's the reason behind doing something like that? Well, Mary, I think the the first reason is, um, you know, the sustainability. Um, and to me, it is really about connecting with that, the web of life around us. And I think we've learned how important things like pollinators are um, and all the native species of bees and so on. And it's when you start to really study that, it's shocking how many of them are um, plant specific. Like we have lots of bees right now who are out that the only thing they will feed their young are pollen and nectar from goldenrods and asters. And so if you don't have those types of things in your garden, you know, sure, um, they can get nectar and stuff from like cat mint or the beautiful autumn sedums. And I'm not against those, but if you don't have the natives integrated in there, you just are not creating habitat for a major component of the web of life around us. And I think, you know, Doug Tallamy, um, I think he's pretty well known now with bringing nature home, you know, really has done the research proving that. And I think his research has shown that you really need to have about 70% native plants to really have, you know, a healthy ecosystem of nature uh, around you. So, and, and I, I, I'll admit, I am not, you know, an absolute purist that everything that you grow should be native. Um, and I, I start that off with, I like to eat. <laughs> How many of us could eat just native plants? I mean, you know, so gardening with edibles, 
Um, but again, having companion plants of natives, you know, wherever you can. And, and, you know, I love some of the things like peonies, but then I have, you know, swamp milkweed and mountain mint growing right next to my peonies. And then those kind of grow up and overtake and bloom later and provide more. Um, so, you know, it's also integrating these things together. So, And that's one of the things your book does talk a lot about, sort of how to plan a landscape for using natives and what are the things to consider? And I noticed in your list, like the last thing to consider is what do I like? <laughs> What's pretty <laughs> to me? So, but what are some of the things people should think about if they're going to have a landscape that involves a lot of natives or, or right. really any landscape to be honest. Yeah. You, you need to start with really knowing, you know, your site conditions um, and match the plants to the site conditions you have. If you have a shady wooded site, I mean, obviously don't plant a prairie, you know, you want to work off the existing conditions and what, what are those soils? Do you have really well-drained sandy soils? Do you have heavy clays? Do you have wet locations? And really, you know, learning your site, doing that inventory of your site and those conditions, and then trying to match plants that um, have have those horticultural requirements, because that's just a given, you know, it just absolutely is the bottom line. You can't put a cactus in the water or a water plant in the dry and something that loves sun in the shade. And, you know, you just that basic horticulture part has to be number one. And then I, I talk about function and, and um, you know, you really want it to, you know, we're talking, part of the goal is also sustainable landscapes. And I think about the first settlers who came to Minnesota and, you know, they did things like planted windbreaks and planted shade trees. And those are two examples I always like to start with to help people understand what function in the landscape means is, you know, obviously in the winter we have pretty fierce northwest winds and plant evergreens or other dense screening plants to block those winds uh, from your home. It's amazing how you create a nice sheltered garden with that. And of course, you actually will reduce the heating bill of your home. just by doing that. And there's actually research well from Iowa State saying if everyone planted windbreaks better, uh, even in a you know home residential landscape, you lowered the wind against your house, it would be the biggest energy conservation thing we could do bar none. So, wow. um, and then when it comes to shade, I think that's well known. Um, you know, in the summer we have intense bright sun and especially in the afternoon, um, on your home is when it, you know, the hottest part of the day, if you have a shade tree blocking, um, you know, the, the intense sun from your home in the late afternoon, I mean, it's amazing what you can, how you can reduce the temperature of your home and reduce your cooling bill. Um, and, and just in general, I think we all, you know, how important the urban forest is and just especially in urban areas to, to counteract the heat island effect um, so, you know, it is amazing how much shade really uh, creates a nicer environment for the most part. That's not to say we don't love our sun and, you know, prairie was a big component here too. So, you know, but it's just being mindful of that. Um, a lot of people just think, well, I need to plant a shade tree in the front yard and it should be more like I need to plant a shade tree to shade my house. You know, that really should be the 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 thinking on how does it function for me so yeah and actually you know is that when I when I was a young homeowner I think the last thing I thought about was what direction does my house face yeah and now that I've been around a little longer and I'm on my third house when we bought this house we first said oh great the front faces south 
So uh-huh. we have a nice sunny window in the front, of, you know, and we put some trees up. But I mean, thinking about even orientation of your house, yep. it's mm-hmm. really important to the comfort level and kind of where you should plant things. Yeah, you, you bet. And I, I'm, you know, and it also it gets the west side of my house. Um, I have a prairie, but I have planted actually a honey locust really quite close to the house. They are very sturdy, wind resistant, you know, strong wooded trees. Um, that will grow fairly close to the house and help cool the house, but I'll still have sun out from it. And, and you know, it's just, you don't want to sit on the west side of my house on a summer afternoon. It's just baking. So my patio, luckily, is on the other side in the afternoon after work. Um, very nice, comfortable space. <laughs> so, Right. Okay, so let's say you've done the sort of the first steps. You've thought about what you what your soil is you've gotten a soil test which i think is a Mm -hmm. good idea you know what your sun is when you're starting to design for natives where do you begin once you've done that step well you start with the trees um i like to call it the planting pyramid and on top are the trees because you need the fewest of them they're your biggest investment and of course they become the biggest um plant over time but then you need to go down the list of, you know, um, start, you know, in my main book, I have it as shade trees on the top and then evergreen trees. Though the, the new book, we just condense it into trees and, and they're lumped together. And then the, the understory after that, look at smaller, smaller trees underneath that that are more human scale um, and larger shrubs that uh, can be better used for screening um, you want to, you, you just want to think of all these layers, just like, you know, when, when you're decorating a room, you've got the ceiling and the main trees are that, um, the walls, um, you know, the maybe smaller trees, large shrubs. And if you actually have a wall, of course, you can use a vine to green it up. Um, and then, you know, the, the floor is the, the ground covers you want to do and, and all the other furniture can be, you know, the incidental, uh, you know, perennials and smaller shrubs, but really trying to think through all layers because the prettiest gardens really do have that structure from the floor to the ceiling. So uh, if, if I can put it in those terms, I think that's the best way to visualize that. Mm-hmm. Well, and starting sort of from the top down, what are what are some of the, the native trees that you think work best, let's say like in a suburban or urban environment, which is where sure. many of the listeners we have would be? Right. Um, my my favorite tree is the white oak. Um, and again, its wildlife value, its aesthetics are astounding, though it is a little bit of a fussy tree. It, 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 you have to have a good natural soil profile. So older neighborhoods that were built pre-1920, where they hand dug basements and stuff, usually neighborhoods like that, they do really well. But modern neighborhoods where they've regraded all the soil and the soil structure is all ruined, um, white oak is not such a good choice. And then you would want to use swamp white oak, which is much more tolerant of disturbed soils. Obviously, it's a floodplain species that still will grow in upland areas. Um, and so that that would, you know, obviously oaks are the most uh, long-lived. So you're also sequestering carbon. They are the best for wildlife, both in all the insects they attract. And then, of course, they're, the acorns, the mass th- themselves that they produce, uh, attracts the most amount of wildlife. So you are helping the environment, you know, number one by oaks. So for your shade trees. And, and you know, we do have a, a good diversity for all different types of uh, conditions that you might have. Um, white oak is actually fairly shade tolerant. So 
Um, you know, you could start one under another tree that you know isn't going to be there long. Um, Northern red oak is also a little bit shade tolerant, so you could do that as well with that. And um, if you have more of a harsh site, the bur oak is, you know, a rugged species, and the northern pin oak is also another rugged species. So, yeah, we've got a, a good, good, good selection to choose from. Mm-hmm. And what about conifers? You know, I've heard some people say, well, some of the conifers aren't going to be around long with climate change, and they're you know, tricky. I know, and and I think most of that has to do with yeah, in in their natural reproducing condition, but a lot of them are. Um, well, eastern white pine, of course, is native all the way to Georgia um, in the mountains and actually is fairly heat tolerant. So I think it, you know, and, and there are native populations disjunct way south, you know, in Iowa and Illinois, Indiana. Um, actually, the arboretum we've thought about, we need to probably go collect from those um, warmer sites and, and look at things like that um, for to get some gene pool that might be more um resistant to future climate change. But I, I still think, yeah, evergreens are just critical. And, you know, eastern white pine is, you know, native across Minnesota from southeast to, um, you know, up into the northern part of the state. So yeah. is, is, is a really a good choice as long as you have good tra- drainage. Red pine, yeah, is much more fussy, our state tree, really having to have good drainage. And it's one I know they're more concerned with losing with climate change. Um, balsam fir does really well in gardens, um, but again, plant it um, not on the hot southwest side of your house, but you know more in a cooler location on the north or east, where it's also going to help with the windbreak aspect. So mm-hmm. um, it, you know, I still we have beautiful, beautiful plants of that here at the arboretum, and then the the uh, the one that we never talk about that we should and definitely is going to be climate resistant is the eastern red cedar. And we kind of poo-poo that plant, but really it's an amazing native, uh, very, very, very drought tolerant and heat tolerant. Um, and of course, it's dioecious, which means each plant is either male or female. And the female plants have those beautiful blue berry-like cones, which are great for wildlife in the winter. The male trees have the little orangish pollen cones. So in the winter, they look really orangey, and some people hate that about them. But I think, wow, what a great aesthetic for our winter landscape. It ties in beautifully with the colors of dried uh, perennials and ornamental or you know native grasses that I, I'm not. Why does an evergreen have to be green, green in the winter? To me, it's like it's still you know a, a great sheltering plant. So, and then of course those are very long lived. You know, um, there are many over 400 years old growing on rocky outcrops around the Midwest, and we know it can live really to be a thousand actually, which is pretty amazing. So, red cedar is is a, is a good choice. Oh, okay. Why do you think it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves? Well, part of it is I think that it's that green. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Though, you know, they actually have some good selections, female selections with good that produce cones each year and have a greener needle. But I I think, you know, even the Arboretum, maybe we should do more of that as selecting some really nice strains um, from from around the upper Midwest uh, for people. Some of them are also actually kind of weeping, which is kind of neat. In the wild, I see often some really nice pendant ones that I keep thinking, hmm, we should get cuttings off that one. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. So, and then let's all move down. Let's go something, maybe three or four of the top shrubs for, for our 
you know, and of course there's hundreds, there's dozens of shrubs. There's billions, I know. Um, one of my favorites is the red twig dogwood. Um, it um, obviously for winter color, and I think we completely under under garden for winter <laughs> and, and, and what our landscape looks like for really almost half the year here. So, um, and then, in, you know, of course it has really good nectar rich flowers that it, it naturally repeats bloom and the white fruit that it produces um, over the summer, usually two and sometimes even a third crop of berries, um, you know, is really high in fats for songbirds and, and wildlife. So it's, it's just a, a really good uh, plant. It's just, you know, as you know, it, manage it right, you know, cut out the old stems on it and um, gardening with it in Europe, um, they actually, um, can you know they recommend once you've had one three years you can cut them completely off and completely rejuvenate them so you get the really beautiful bright red um, yeah. stem stem yeah, color. And I've done that actually. I've done mm-hmm. that in a former garden. Took them good. They got scraggly. Took them yeah, all they, the way down. They, they well otherwise. Yep. Yeah. And so yeah, uh, right. And and I you know there are new planting in my front yard under a birch grove that I created. And yeah, I'm going to do that to keep them you know, in, in looking more in a traditional landscape there. Um, boy, that's, um, there's just so many to choose from. What else would I say? Um, you know, one of the dogwoods, like I said, uh, the highbush cranberry by Burnham tri- trilobum is another one. And I, again, I love it for the, the winter, 10 below zero, and the bright red berries don't discolor. So there aren't many plants that are like that. And of course, the white lace cap flowers and beautiful foliage and great fall color. Um, so that would be um, another really um top one I would select and I, I keep I keep thinking pagoda dogwood too and and then if you um the hazelnut the native hazelnut shrub um the fall color to me is just one of the best and of course you know if you're into edible landscaping um you know the nut production if you can beat the squirrels to them is great and it also has a lot of um uh, moths and so on that it yeah. attracts. And what about, you know, one, I, I know there's a lot of people in Minnesota that are shade gardeners. They have mm-hmm. shade and, and, you know, the, the, it's sort of like, well, ferns and hosta, but there are some native options for people gardening in shade too. I mean, what would you oh. suggest? <laughs> well, you already said ferns, maiden, maiden hair fern comes to mind. Yeah, um, no. So that's a native. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is one of my favorites. And I love pairing it in contrast with the ground cover, you know, wild ginger, um, which I think we should use a lot more. Um, and Pennsylvania sedge um, as another really low grassy ground cover in those shady conditions. Um, and then, of course, there's other native sedges um, to Carex rosea and Carex radiata. Some of them don't have very good common names, but um, Pennsylvania sedge is, is probably my absolute favorite. And of course, spring ephemerals always, you know, my m- number one choice in that group is Virginia bluebells, which of course are native to Southeast Minnesota. Don't quite get to the Metro, but you got to remember plant ranges are not, we're never static. And every year they're moving a little bit further North. And of course they've naturalized from plantings in certain areas uh, around the Metro, but, um, they, you know, pairing them, if you had hostas, you know, pairing them so that they come up before the hostas and bloom and do their thing, provide nectar for spring pollinators and so on. And then, of course, they go dormant by midsummer and then your hostas can come in place for them. So 
Um, Virginia bluebells are are just one of my favorite. Uh, you know, obviously Columbine. I, I think again, um, in in a shady landscape, we forget about fall interest too. So some of the things that have pretty fall berries, like the bane berries, both red and white, and actually um, Solomon's seal is one of my favorite plants. As you know, it clumps up and has those pendant flowers in late spring. But in the fall, to me, they're just to die for. They get beautiful golden yellow, and then the berries are. Uh, really richly blue colored, really nice contrast in the fall. One of my, one of my all time favorite plants. So um, yeah, there's still a lot of options for fall, but yeah, do think through the whole season, not just spring ephemerals, which can happen, you know, think about those long-term ground covers like Pennsylvania sedge and wild ginger and tuck in some of those fall, fall things, even Jack in the pulpits, you know, the fall berries now red um, add a little, a little color too. So yeah. Okay. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is the the development, you know, as more people have become interested in native plants, there have been what are cultivars of natives, the so-called nativars. Mm-hmm. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I just am curious as to your opinion of those uh, plants and how should, if somebody wants to be mostly native or fully native, how how, how do you approach using nativars mm-hmm. in, in, in garden situations? Well, um, obviously, I look at um, what was the origin of that native R. Many of them are just selections of native plants, existing native plants. And in that respect, they fill all the ecological functions of just a seed-grown plant. And I have no problem with that. Uh, A blue heaven, little blue stem that, you know, we introduced here is just from a native little blue stem found in Minnesota. So, you know, the, the same insects that eat regular little blue stem, eat that one. Um, in terms of um, plants with flowers, obviously, you know, some of some of the native ours are of hybrids. And, you know, I, I, I like to look at, you know, are the bees using that particular variety? And, and some of it's obvious if they're, you know, double flowers and they no longer have the nectar ports, then it's like, no, I wouldn't doesn't count as a native plant. <laughs> so it, you just have to look at it as a case by case basis. And I guess, you know, if it is a more um, garden worthy selection and it gets people to plant more natives in their garden, I'm going to say go for it. Um, because I think that that is so important. Um, but it is nice to really use, you know, some seed strains so you get some genetic variation going on. And it is surprising. A lot of plants like our asters are, are not self-fertile. And, you know, we want these gardens to have seeds for the birds in winter and stuff like that. So having a seed strain of something, you're going to get some fruit set and, and that kind of thing. And so I like to consider that as well. Mm-hmm. And let's just, uh, you've used the term selection versus, and then hybrid. Maybe you could just explain sort of the difference between sure. the two things for folks. Right. Um, yeah. Selection is one. Yeah. It's some, someone found that particular plant growing either in a, you know, horticultural or a natural setting and just selected it for its attributes. Um, I'm looking out my window and seeing the stately manor Kentucky coffee tree. You know, that was just selected from a tree growing in Shorewood, you know, that the main tree is still there. And it, so it's just a selection and, you know, has all the attributes of any native Kentucky coffee tree. And yeah, the hybrids where they're specifically crossing um, different uh, selections of a plant to 
you know, usually it's to make it a showier flower. Right. Um, that's usually the reason. And in doing that, sometimes they forfeit fragrance and nectar and pollen and all these important things. So, um, right. yeah. And sometimes they're also select or hybridizing to make them sterile. Yeah, and so to make not, them so they're not spreading all over the place, you know. I know, and I, and that's a that's a tough one. Um, yeah, it's like I want them to have fruit, like I talked about. Um, but some of you know, there are times where I wonder on that because um, things get so seedy because they're meant. You know, you're talking about natives that are meant to be here, so it it, it can be a double edged sword. So if somebody wanted to go and visit some gardens that are as they're deciding on their own plantings and what they want, what would you know? The arboretum would be a good place to visit. Any other suggestions on where people could visit to see native plants in? garden settings. Yeah, I know that's a, cause yeah, my next place is always the Eloise Butler wildflower garden, which of course, you know, one of the most historic native plant gardens in the country and sacred ground to me always has been <laughs> since the first time I went there. And, um, but yeah, it is in more of a natural setting. Um, you know, it's and and the arboretum, I, I think that we have probably the best cross section of having them in natural settings and in formal gardens. I mean, our perennial garden has, you know, I want to say at least 20 percent of it is native plants, which is pretty amazing. Um, and in that kind of setting. So, you you know, there's all kind of ironweed and and various coneflowers and and uh yeah, the native little blue stem and, you know, a whole bunch in, in there as well and integrated in with more standard plants. And so that's a, a really good place. I know it is terrible um, that we probably don't have, you know, in the metro really good public areas that show this. Though even just driving the Grand Rounds, a lot of the planters um, at some of the intersections, I think, have some really nice mixes of native and non-native you know, in, in the Twin Cities. And I like seeing that. Prairie drop seed is one of the native grasses that's gotten a lot of use in traditional landscapes in both commercial and residential. And it's, it's I'm really happy to see that. So, um, yeah, Arboretum, number one, Eloise Butler, number two. <laughs> okay, good place to go. Good places to go. Okay, um, we, I, you know, I wanna, I'm going to have to have you back another time. We're kind of running out of time on sure. this. But the book is The Midwest Native Plant primer and it's 225 native plants and i think we've only talked about maybe a dozen of them so <laughs> folks can listen you know get the book and and check them all out but thank you're you so much alan for, for you're very welcome Mary. thank you for having me thanks so much for joining me for this episode of grow it minnesota if you have comments, questions, or a topic you'd like to see covered, please send me an email at growitmn at gmail.com. You can also follow along between episodes at growitmn on Instagram. Have a great day. We'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks. Music.